0: Welcome to another episode of your Friendly Neighborhood Filmcast, a weekly podcast where we spread the good word about movies. I am your host, Jack, and with me is returning guest, Lydia.
1: Hello! I'm so excited to be here and talk about these horse girls. Let's do
0: it! Horse girls forever. (laughs) Today we are talking about the 2017 film, Thoroughbreds. Directed by Corey Finley and described by IMDb as Two upper-class teenage girls in suburban Connecticut rekindle their unlikely friendship after years of growing apart. Together they hatch a plan to solve both of their problems, no matter what the cost. So, with that vague description, what is your background and what are your spoiler-free thoughts on Thoroughbreds?
1: I think I just came across this movie randomly on HBO or something last year. I saw it had Olivia Cook in it, and I really like her. I've seen her. She played Amanda in this movie. I've seen her in several Mm -hmm. things, and I think she's great. So I decided to give it a go. And I was shocked by how much I enjoyed it. There are so many different angles to this movie that we can approach, and I honestly, I kind of don't know where to start. But I guess maybe what I should ask first is relevant to my intro, which is, were you a horse girl in middle school? Absolutely not. No. That
0: is like such a foreign concept to me. I did have a roommate who was a horse girl that we both know. I won't out her on the podcast, but you know who she is. I do,
1: actually. Um, I was not a horse girl, but I wanted to be. Okay. And I know you're like, you could just be one if you wanted to be a horse girl. But my thing is, I was a bookworm. Mm-hmm. So I read a bunch of books about horses, but I didn't do anything further than that. So maybe that is the definition of a horse girl. I'm not sure. And to be clear, this movie is not about horse girls, but it literally the first scene is a horse. And immediately I knew I had to ask you that question. I think it's so interesting. It's thematically fitting, for sure. <laughs> it fits. Yeah. It makes sense. So we have Amanda, who's Olivia Cook, and then Lily, who's played by Anya Taylor Joy, I think is how you say her name. Mm-hmm. And they're in this very glossy and pretty world in suburban Connecticut. And it's very clearly like wealthy, affluent, white suburban Connecticut. Lily literally lives in what I would describe as like a mansion. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe I'm just not used to rich people, but I would describe it as a mansion. And it's everything's marble and it's they have a cook slash maid slash gardeners, all these different people serving them. It's it's pretty bizarre. So they are these girls who live in this beautiful place, and what this movie does is immediately show us How it's a cover for what's really happening in these households, in these relationships, in this neighborhood. It's hiding. It's so hard to know where to start, though, with this movie. I guess I could start with how two of the things I love that this director did was sound. I love how he used sound in this movie. There's a lot of atonal effects, so like rhythmic drones and like spring and noises and like the pin tapping against the table... I don't know how to describe all the weird sounds, but they kind of act as this counterpoint to the clean visual. Mm -hmm. So it's this clean, fancy, beautiful, white, marbled house and these creepy, unsettling, like, bass drum sounds. And then a lot of silence. It just puts you on edge and then it'll snap you to attention and make you pay attention to different elements of it. So I really like sound. It's definitely not a a score I would listen to. Maybe I'd play it in the background at Halloween or mm-hmm. something, because it's creepy and unsettling. But yeah, you can come over <laughs> we'll play creepy music. But yeah, I think sound is really interesting here. And then when you compare it to um, the shots. So I don't know anything about cameras or film, technically, or anything like that. But I mean, there was some really interesting camera work in this movie.
0: I would agree. I think that... For me, what immediately drew my attention to this was the first scene where we see Amanda walking into Lily's house, and it's just one continuous take as she's walking throughout all of these rooms. And I was kind of hoping that they were just going to keep that take for as long as they could, but then I think as soon as she opens up the sword, then we cut to Lily looking at her. And then, of course, it breaks that shot. But I loved how there was just that long, continuous shot as she's walking throughout all of these rooms in this gorgeous house. It was very impressive. Yeah, and it's
1: it's like the camera's stalking her, Yeah, her. It's like a beautiful, nice, pretty house, but the way the camera moves makes it kind of creepy. It's unsettling. It's like a maze because the camera's following her around corners. And it's, I don't know, it's creepy. It's hunting her, like a... Like a lion or something. I love those long takes. And, okay, so at the beginning of the movie, near the beginning, when Amanda and Lily are reintroducing themselves to each other, they're dealing with their history and their separation, and now they're talking again. They're often placed far apart on the screen, right? They're, like, at the opposite edges of the screen. They're on a long couch, and one's way over here, and one's way over on the other side. Mm -hmm. And then as they grow closer together... And become more similar, they're brought together in the screen. And I just I think that's really interesting.
0: Yeah. I loved the use of negative space in this movie. I I'm a huge fan of negative space. So this was that's... this was like eye candy for me. I loved all of the camera work. Yeah, I love that you're like, I'm a fan of negative space. I we
1: have to talk about that later. Absolutely. I mean, with shots in this movie, the best shot is in the spoiler section we can talk about. At least, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. But we won't, we won't get there yet. Um, We have to talk about these two girls and how they're presented at the beginning as, like, normal versus abnormal. Normal versus sociopath. Good versus bad. So we have Lily, who's who lives with her mother and her stepfather in this rich mansion, and she, you know, she has... She finished boarding school early, and... She's working on her prestigious internship. And then we have Amanda, who's troubled and mutilated her family horse, Honeymoon, or, like, she killed their family horse who had a broken leg out of mercy and has kind of been asocial ever since. And then those labels and assumptions are complicated pretty quickly. Amanda says she doesn't feel emotions, right? She says, I feel Hunger, hungry sometimes and tired sometimes, but I don't feel joy or anger. She says that. And we see Lily cry. We see her upset. And you have to wonder, like, who's manipulating who? Who is really pulling the strings here? It's just their, their dynamic is so interesting. What did you think of it at first?
0: It is. And it was interesting for me researching this movie after watching it. Apparently, um, Corey Finley intended on this being a stage play at first, and that makes a lot of sense because it is mostly just scenes of dialogue with two or three people talking to each other, and I think that it kind of takes similar character arcs that you would find in a play versus a, a typical movie. It's divided very
1: clearly into chapters Mm -hmm. or acts. And I will say the strongest part of this movie, besides the acting, I think Lily and Amanda, the acting is simply phenomenal. But um, the dialogue is so tight and so good in this movie, I think. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I don't want to assume. I think it's great. There's so many good lines.
0: Yeah. And what I find really interesting, which this kind of feeds into background, so I'll kind of... We've my background into that is that I never saw a trailer for this movie initially. I vaguely remember hearing about it a couple of years ago, but I experienced the Mandela effect in the sense that I thought this was released in spring of 2017. And when you google the movie, it shows up as a 2017 film. Apparently, it was it had a limited release in 2017, but it wasn't released. Like, it didn't have a widespread release until March of 2018, and I just found that out yesterday, and now my brain is just trying to process that because I'm like, I swear Uh-oh. in 2017, this movie came out and I was aware of it instead of a year later, but anyways, I didn't really know much about it. I didn't know who was in it until you suggested it in the first episode that we recorded, the Knives Out episode, and- um I find Anya Taylor-Joy to be a very interesting actress. I think she has a very interesting face. I like to watch her face, if that makes sense.
1: She is like Tyra Banks always said in like America's Next Top Model. She ha- She's weird. She's not normal. Her face has a strange shape and it really works for her. I'm pretty sure she's like professionally a model. She has to be. With that face, she has to be a model.
0: Mm-hmm. And I love Olivia Cook. I'm going to out myself and say that I actually kind of liked Ready Player One. And she was a big part of why I liked that movie because she's really good in it. I liked that
1: movie too. I Thank you. Okay, we can talk about this later for sure if you want. But I had not, I came into that movie not knowing anything about the plot. Same here. And I thought it was really fun to watch. I thought it was really interesting. And... That movie is what convinced me to w- finally watch The Shining, actually, <laughs> because there's references to that it. Same yeah, here. Yeah, and she's great in that movie. I'm so glad you said that. Nev- I don't remember how much I like it until I s- am watching that movie. But she's great in it. She's excellent.
0: She is. And I didn't realize, too, that Anton Yelchin was in this movie, and that it was very his last- sadly, yeah, his last role, and... I think that's partially why I thought this was 2017 also because of his passing in 2016. The timeline just made more sense. So I will categorize this film as 2017 because that's what Google says, but it wasn't officially out. Well, I guess kind of like with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It was released in 2019, but the U.S. didn't get it until 2020, so it's kind of questionable but I didn't watch the trailer for this until last night in preparation for the podcast and I'm really glad that I didn't watch the trailer before seeing this movie because I think it's too flashy and the marketing is like trying to appeal to a teen audience and it takes this very sharp good dialogue and just I don't know the the marketing I don't think really uh serviced this movie well, so I'm glad that I didn't know much about it going into it.
1: I agree with that. I'm so glad you mentioned something. I, I did the same thing as you. I watched the trailer last night to remind myself, and they have that flashing, like, this is Lily. This is Amanda. And it yeah. sets it up to be a very rom com kind of feel, even though it's not romantic. Maybe that's just comedy, like a teen comedy. Yeah, you get a very different vibe. from the trailer than you get from the movie which you have to remind yourself that they're teenagers the way that they act is so cold and calculated that you kind of forget Mm -hmm. how young they are at least i did sometimes
0: in a weird way this movie kind of made me miss being a teenager (laughs) that's
1: so funny because it made me feel the exact opposite i was like you could not pay me enough To be that young again and to like not have independence, to have an underdeveloped brain, to be in high school parties. Like, oh, that sounds awful. I'm. What part do you,
0: can you think of a part that kind of made you feel that nostalgia? I think the scenes with Lily and Amanda just kind of aimlessly wandering around doing whatever they want, not having a lot of stuff that they have to do at any given point of the day. The fact that they can just hang out and watch movies and not have any responsibilities, and be in the same room safely is a lot of stuff that I miss. But uh, we can get more into that in spoilers.
1: They kind of, now that you mention it, they, they do kind of wander around, not facing any consequences. Because of their privilege and their age and where they are. You're right. They don't even consider the bigger picture. And, I mean, who did as a teen? You're right, kind of. Like, that... Not you making me want to be a teenager again, Jack.
0: I don't don't like that. I understand. My overall thoughts on this can be summed up in a quote from a Kesha song. We're pretty and sick. We're young and we're bored. Ah,
1: (laughs) that's exactly it. You know, I honestly, thinking back, I honestly think part of the reason the events of this movie happen is because they're bored. Yes. Which is outrageous. I don't want to spoil anything yet, but I think, you know, setting up the context, they decide to try to kill her stepdad because they don't like him, right? So they're planning a murder in this movie. And (laughs) they're not great at planning murders, but they think they are. And it's honestly, it feels like it's because they're bored. They They have a need for an outlet for this rage that they yeah. f- tar- they need a target for their frustration of being young and not having control over their lives. And so they decide, let's deal with Lily's stepdad. That's logical, right? <laughs> That's what we should do this week. <laughs>
0: yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that coming up shortly. <laughs> so much to talk about.
1: I did want to ask you what you thought about Mark, Maybe we should save that for spoilers, though.
0: I would be okay with heading into spoilers pretty quick. Just a few things I wanted to touch on while I I could before we go into spoiler territory is that the director for this movie grew up in St. Louis. And maybe that's why I remember hearing about this movie when it was released because whenever someone from St. Louis does anything, it's like a big... big announcement in the St. Louis newspaper in the go section. There's always a little article about them. and
1: We're always very proud of people from Missouri doing
0: something. (laughs) They are. And it's interesting because watching this movie, not even knowing that he was from St. Louis, the suburban wealthy areas that you see in this movie reminded me a lot of suburban wealth in St. Louis like if you've ever been around the Ledoux area or South County like the houses look very similar and I know that that could just be different states and you know I haven't experienced different suburban wealth in different states to know the difference if there is one but um It was interesting because he said that the inspiration was actually East Coast wealth when he was in college, I guess. He studied on the East Coast and observed these wealthy suburban areas. But for me, it felt very reminiscent of these wealthy St. Louis homes that I would drive around and look at around like Halloween time or Christmas time and see their decorations because that's what you do when you're young and you're bored is you just look for fun like that.
1: Or or you try to murder someone. You know? Yeah. Whatever works for you. That's interesting. I wonder if it's because rich white people in suburban America are the same across the country?
0: or Yeah, that's what I'm starting to wonder. It could be. But yeah. Could be. I'm
1: not rich enough to know.
0: I'm not either. <laughs> but I think that this movie overall, without getting into spoilers, despite the very dark... Nature. It's very palatable, and I think it's because this story is told in such a cold, distant manner. Like the characters are very cold and calculating. That it's it doesn't feel as a uh, cutting or biting as another movie would if it felt more intimate if that makes sense I think it works really well for this movie though
1: yeah I mean I think there are two things come to mind the first is that there's not really any violence on camera yes Mm -hmm. anything that happens is off camera Mm -hmm. which adds to that a little bit and also maybe you felt the same way but my favorite part of this whole script is how easily I was talked into murdering this dude (laughs) I was like I mean, I hate Mark. He's an emotionally abusive asshole. And murder is suggested, and my response isn't like, shock and horror! I'm like, okay, yeah. Of of course they would. Let's move on. What happens next? (laughs) You just don't feel the horror that you would. I think part of it Uh is this biased viewpoint, obviously, we get from Lily. And how much she hates him. And so that's the only thing we know about him, is through that lens of her hate. So it's easier to be okay with him getting murdered I guess but then you watch it and you realize okay I was fine with a lot more than I usually would be.
0: Yeah I'm I'm glad that you felt that way I felt very similarly it kind of reminded me you're a John Mulaney fan yes?
1: Oh oh yes I have watched all of his comedy specials at least four times each. (laughs)
0: Okay, perfect. That's what I thought. But I just wanted to make sure because it reminded me of that joke where they're reading out loud his emails in court where he's saying, "Hey, do you want me to kill that guy for you?" Because I definitely would.
1: That's the You know, that's the plot of this movie. Amanda's I like It is. "Do you want me to kill that guy for you?" And Lily is like, "No,
0: of course not." Wink. <laughs> but I actually do. <laughs> Well, with that, do you want to just get into spoilers and we can talk about this more in detail?
1: There are so many things to say, but some of it, I can't tell exactly what point in the movie you would stop and say everything from here on out is a spoiler. So yeah, I, I think um, I would love to talk about Tim, who is played by Anton Yelchin. Yes. In his last on-screen May role. May he rest
0: in peace. May he rest
1: in peace. When I was at the Academy, we always watched the Star Trek reboots. And I'm not saying that they're great movies, but I'm saying he is great in them as Chekhov. Mm-hmm. And he would—he had that line where he's like, I can do that! I can do that! And he is screaming it across the ship, and we used to say that to each other all the time! He's such a different character in this movie, obviously. I mean, I love Tim's character because it it's the foil to these girls. Right? He's a small town drug dealer. He's poor. He's I don't want to say uneducated, but he definitely doesn't have the resources that these girls do. He's being used to do their dirty work. But at the same time, he seems very naive. He's always talking about how in 10 years I'm going to be the biggest drug dealer on the East Coast. I don't think so. <laughs> he has a few lines where he says, you know, I'm going to be rich and famous. And it just seems very sad. What did you think of Tim?
0: So that is a note that I had because I did not know how to feel about this character. And I think for me, what that really stemmed from was the fact that when we're first introduced to him, he's like a supposed sex offender. Yeah. I mean, he's a creepy dude. He's really creepy. And then he's somehow the moral backbone of this movie and I I was just very confused on how we as an audience are supposed to feel about this character who is like supposedly done heinous things himself yet he's telling these girls that they shouldn't murder someone and it's not the best idea yeah i didn't yeah i really did not know how to feel about his character and i think what makes it a little bit more complex too is that he's played by anton yelchin who is just like this precious little bean that you can't help but love even when he's like playing a really creepy dude and yeah i i really did not know how to feel about his character and i didn't know how i felt when he seemed to be doing better for himself at the end, like I don't think that the film should have um you know allowed him to be okay. I don't know, I don't think we can get more into this as well, but of course, it didn't sit well with me that Lily was doing well either, so it's not like I'm not okay with him doing well, but her getting away with murder literally like it you know.
1: Yeah, I I also feel like he was, his introduction to this story was super weird. That whole party scene, and then the party scene felt weird, and then they go out and he's there, which felt weird, and then he talks to Lily out by her car, which feels weird. It's all very clearly a reason to bring him in later. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think there could have been more interesting ways. I think he may have been needed as a character, but I think there were better ways to get him on board. For sure. I love the scene where the girls go to the nursing home where he works because its he claims to be this drug dealer and he's, like, a badass and he's hardcore yeah. and then he's, like, doing dishes for the elderly. So that's interesting. And then as soon as, well, they, the girls try to blackmail him into murdering Lily's stepdad. And when that doesn't work, he, we we just kind of forget about him. We don't talk about him anymore until the very end. So what did the, what were the girls supposed to learn something from that? They didn't. You know, they just moved right along. We kind of forgot about him. I kind of forgot about him until the very end scene. So I, yeah, I have mixed feelings about Tim. Except that I love Anton Yelchin. So mm-hmm. I wanted more of him, but I think it might have been because I just wanted to see more of. Antonio Yelchin, you know, it's, t- it's tough. It's tough. I'm not sure how I feel about him as a character.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think that if he had been introduced differently, maybe that would have been a cleaner introduction to his character Then it wouldn't have felt so topsy turvy to throw him in there. But I do have to say, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the montage where he's seeing the house for the first time. And Ave Maria is playing, which second best use of Ave Maria behind an episode of Mr. Robot, but won't get into that. It was really
1: good. And that whole scene of him and the two girls in Lily's house in the mansion is just phenomenal. The whole thing, the gun, The tension, how it rackets up, and how calm Amanda is the entire time. I don't know if I believe that she doesn't feel emotions, and we can get into that later, but she doesn't seem like it in that scene. So whenever they, um, what is his action? Tim wrestles with Amanda, and then Lily points a gun at him to make him stop, and then Lily, or Amanda, comes up behind him with a lamp and knocks him cold, and then... We see him in the bathtub with the worst bandages I've ever seen. It's like they duct taped some construction oh paper to his head. And we're like, that'll stop the bleeding. These girls are not prepared.
0: No. And when he's like, how am I supposed to explain this to my dad? And they say, wear a hat? I don't know. And that's that scene also has my favorite line in the movie
1: where Amanda says, the only thing worse than being incompetent or being unkind or being evil is being indecisive. Mm-hmm. Which explains so much about how she approaches the world, but also makes me wonder, you know, why would someone who doesn't feel emotions care about being unkind? I I have a lot of thoughts about that quote, and I'm not sure what they are, but I like it.
0: <laughs> I know that. hmm She's nothing if not decisive, really. Kind of along those lines, watching this movie, I felt... Very similarly to a way that it's described in The Great Gatsby by the narrator Nick Carraway, where he's simultaneously within and without of these walls and enchanted but repulsed by these people. And that's definitely how I felt watching this movie because I think that I really enjoyed the way that these houses looked. And it was beautiful to be inside of these mansions for an hour and a half and I found myself really enjoying that part but also just the people themselves are so terrible and as I've gotten older and learned more about the world and have become more disgusted with excessive wealth because you learn that most of the wealthy people in the world aren't great people but there still is that duality within myself where it's like I'm enchanted by that but also repulsed by it.
1: I think that's what I intended to do. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everything is so stylish and well manicured. But if you want to be a rich, successful person, empathy is like the first thing you have to discard. And that is the message here. I mean, we have to talk about Mark, the stepdad. Yes. I have such mixed feelings on him that I did not. I've seen this movie twice. And the first time I did not have mixed feelings about him. And now I do a little bit watching it again, which is so strange to me.
0: I'm curious what your mixed feelings are. I'll lay it out and
1: start by saying I do not like him. I don't think that's a surprise. I don't think he's very likable as we see him. He, I mean, we're, we're not meant to like him. The first glimpses of him we get are of his office, where he's a photo of him killing a lion. Automatically, I'm like, you're a dick. And he has... Anytime a white man poses with pictures of like samurai swords, I'm like, "Mm, red flag, don't like that. He keeps trophies. This man likes trophies, including Lily's mom. Mm -hmm. He is not a great person, but it's not until he actively becomes a problem that Lily wants to murder him. Like the problem being sending her away to what seems like a, like a military academy, like a boarding school for girls with a bad place. She doesn't want to go there. He's sending her there. And now as I watch it again, I'm thinking we're only seeing him through the lens of Lily. She's extremely biased and she's not this innocent angel. I'm not victim blaming anyone here, but I mean, she was kicked out of boarding school because she plagiarized and had behavioral problems. Maybe she's not the easiest child to have especially as a stepchild. Maybe there is friction there, and that's why he's... Is that why he's cold with her? I don't know. I I still don't like him. But <laughs> now I'm just... I don't know. What are your thoughts on Mark? Help me out here.
0: I think that all of your reasoning is very valid, and I think that is a good point that you bring up, that we are seeing this through Lily's lens. So... It is very biased, and that is something that I noticed throughout the movie is that he's obviously not a likable person, but I kept waiting for their dynamic to have more of a sinister nature, if that makes sense. Yeah, I thought he was like, going to I, hit
1: her, or... Yes! it was like He's clearly emotionally abusive in some ways, but I mm-hmm. thought it was going to escalate to something super dark, like it turned out he was hurting her or abusing her and Mm -hmm. from what we're shown it doesn't get sinister which is great but also yeah i agree i was expecting that
0: yeah and i think that i kept waiting for that because i was thinking that there was going to be some kind of reveal where we were completely on her side for wanting to go through with this and you know as complicated as this is uh not that i was against her uh deciding to do what she does but uh I just kept waiting for there to be more of a sinister nature and not that I am discarding emotional or verbal abuse any kind of abuse is terrible so that in of itself is bad I just kept waiting for there to be more to the story than what we were shown but that's not even implied Yeah I thought
1: you know there were times when I thought we were gonna learn that Mark was hitting Lily's mom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which again, like you said, emotional abuse is just as bad. But it's almost interesting that he doesn't because again that makes it more of a gray even though the whole th- the whole movie's a gray area, it's still yeah. like it would be so easy for him to hit one of them and us to suddenly be like, You're a dead man, I'm on board, let's kill you. And then mm-hmm. now we're like, he's kind of a jerk. And <laughs> she goes straight to murder. And then the murder doesn't work out. Their big, brilliant plan, you know? Tim gets scared off by the lights, which I think is such a good scene. Where Mark is alone in the house, and he sees the motion-censored lights go off. And you just see those great shots of the outdoors. And you're expecting something, right? Like a body or a someone to run across the screen, and it's just him. Standing there, looking out the window. Yes. So creepy. Did you expect this plan to work out with Tim? Because I kind of felt like it was failed from the start. It did not seem thought out.
0: Yeah. This is... Okay. I wasn't sure if I was going to bring this up or not because it really doesn't play much into how I experienced this movie, but... I did accidentally spoil the ending for myself unintentionally like a year or two ago. This was on cable and I didn't even flip it on there. My mom flipped it on there and like it just so happened to be the scene where Lily is covered in blood and she's kind of wiping it on Amanda and not even knowing the context. That's just like the image that stuck with me. So I I figured like the murder is going to be successful, but I didn't know how. If that makes sense. That's
1: interesting because I didn't have that moment spoiled. That's good. There's this great image where Tim reaches into the grill to get the gun. And you're like, okay, he has a gun. He's here. He's a coward or he's brave, depending on your viewpoint, I guess. But I did not know what was going to happen, which I thought was great. And then there's that great moment at the spa. Okay, So Lily and her mom are at the spa. It's a great, perfect alibi. And there's that scene where Lily looks down at the pedicurist and it has Mark's face. And I was like, that's super cheap and tacky and so overdone. But then you see Mark show up at the spa. And so you're like, wait, is he real? Is he a hallucination? Mm -hmm. I thought that was really well done. I was surprised by how they fixed what I thought was a cheap trick. And made it into a really interesting narrative device. Mm Mm-hmm. So interesting. Okay, so these girls, though. Jack, these girls. It's kind of satisfying as their true natures are slowly revealed throughout this movie. They really kind of feel, in my opinion, to switch places?
0: Merge into one? I was just thinking the same thing.
1: (laughs) It's so interesting! I don't even know where to begin. It's like... Amanda clearly is not as emotionless as she likes to think, and Lily is clearly not as normal as she claims or believes. I, I love the technique scene, of the crying technique, where Amanda teaches Lily how to cry, and then later mm-hmm. Lily says, hey, when we were driving back from my dad's funeral and we were both crying, were you doing the technique then? And Amanda says, yes, I was. Like, so she wasn't really crying. And I think Lily took that as a betrayal. Like, she lied to me. But I saw Amanda as thinking, Lily needs a friend to cry with right now, so I'm going to provide that to her. Therefore, I'm being helpful.
0: Yeah, it's almost like she was expressing vulnerability within herself by admitting to that later on. And then we can get into the whole scene where uh, she is uh, drugged by Lily and uh, she just goes yeah. along with it and she's like, okay, do what you gotta do.
1: You know, this movie could not have taken place anywhere other than like rich white suburban America because if I was 16, mm-hmm. maybe I just wasn't a very interesting child, but I certainly wouldn't know where to get drugs I could use to ruin your kid. No. No. <laughs> But I feel like rich people in these movies always have, like, a medicine cabinet full of, like, Vicodin and and different things you could use to, like, come up with a drug top cocktail, I guess. I don't know. But logistically, you know, I could not have done that. But, oh, that whole shot is so good. It's one long shot. It's the only blood in another—well— that and um, Tim's head injury. But it's really the only bloody scene in the entire Bloodless movie. And it's brilliant. While it's happening, yeah. we can only guess what's going on. It's all based yes. on sound, right? So all it is is zooming in and Amanda on the couch roofied. And then we hear Lily going upstairs. Like, does she go through with it? Is Mark overpowering her? Who's winning here? We
0: don't know. Until we see her again.
1: Oh, it's so interesting. What did you think
0: of that scene? Oof. That was beautifully chilling. I kind of wish that other movies would take note from this because I think it's way more effective when the violence is off screen and we're only left to wonder and I think that this movie does such a great job of building tension in moments like that where you just you have to know what's going on and you can only guess because you're not being shown what's going on and... Yeah, this was good. And I don't know, I guess where I was going with that is it's interesting because just getting that little glimpse of the movie. I didn't even know who the actresses were. I just saw some young girl covered with blood wiping blood on another
1: like, Laying in the lap of a girl who's asleep. That was I bet that yeah. was weird out of
0: context. It was so weird out
1: of context, but uh it's something. And then we move on to Lily meeting Tim randomly. I don't remember if it says like 18 months later or something, but it's definitely later, much later. And I have so many thoughts about how this movie ends. (laughs) I think about this ending a lot. I actually rewatched the ending scene a couple of times yesterday to remind myself how frustrated I was. Not because I didn't like it because I did, but by these characters. Like Lily and Amanda are these two excellent halves of one whole. And then Lily abandons Amanda the moment she's no longer abused. Oh, man. I mean, that's that's how I... Okay, so Amanda starts this movie as someone who feels nothing and becomes someone who feels a lot. She feels everything. Why else would she give her life up, essentially, for this girl? And then Lily starts the movie as someone who feels everything and becomes someone who feels nothing and is super cool. They swap places. And then we see Amanda smiling and Mm -hmm. Lily smiling. And... But Amanda's smile feels real and Lily's smile feels robotic. Oh, we, we were so busy being concerned about Amanda when we really should have been concerned about Lily and how she reacted to this. She threw the letter. Amanda wrote her away.
0: Or did she? Or did she? Dun, dun, dun. That's what I kind of got from that is that she just said she threw it away. But now that you're bringing it up that she did, I'm like, oh, did she? Like, I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell.
1: I'm convinced that she threw it away. I don't know if I have any evidence to back that up. But it is very much a turnaround from her crying in Amanda's arms, in her drugged, like, limp arms, Mm -hmm. to throwing the letter away. And then we get the content of the letter, which is interesting, where Amanda's talking about what's happening to her and her dreams, her very weird dreams (laughs) that bring back the horse from the beginning.
0: Yes. I made a note of this. Did you? Tell me more. I just made a note about the significance of her dream, about the future being led into disarray due to the vanity of humans. And I got to say, we're already living in that future. I don't know about you, but (laughs) I I certainly feel that way.
1: So there are the two dreams. The first dream is my favorite, where it's Amanda drinks the roofie. Lily asks why, and then Amanda has a horse's head and can only respond with, like, nay. I think that's great because it's kind of how Amanda and also we, the audience, don't truly understand why she did what she did. We can't respond. There's no answer. And so it's a nay instead. Yeah. And then we have Dream 2, which is much more dramatic. And it's Amanda imagining herself as Honeymooner, the horse, looking over the suburb over time. And you're so right. She talks about, like, people looking at their phones and not at the world around them, which is giving me flashbacks to watching Wally and how everyone's staring at their screens. I don't know. I felt like I understood Dream 1 a lot more than I did the second one. But then we do see Amanda looking at the photo of her and Lily as kids riding the horses and smiling at it. And, oh, she looked so happy. And then we cut right to Lily, smiling robotic just like Amanda was doing in scene one so poor I don't okay again I don't want to say poor Tim because he's a creep but he's like moving on with his life these crazy girls are in his rear rear mirror and then he's doing his valet job and oh look who it is one of the girls who tried to blackmail him into murdering her stepdad <laughs> it's bad luck buddy
0: yeah <laughs> that's an omen for sure what I found very interesting about the dynamic between Amanda and Lily, is that Amanda is very upfront with not having emotions. She's just very open and honest about how she feels, which is not feeling much. And Lily is very coy and secretive about everything and hides how she's feeling. And it's interesting how the person who claims to have no emotions is very upfront about how they feel. And the person who seems like they would have a lot of emotions kind of hides the true nature of what they're doing.
1: That's what makes this movie so good. It's like, you think Amanda's manipulating Lily and turning her into this a social person, and really, it's a little vice versa. Lily is really good at manipulating people into doing what... She wants them to do. And Mark kind of mentions that. That confrontation in the kitchen where she's smoking. And he comes in and he says something about how, like, this is simplifying it, but she's not the center of the world like she thinks she is. He said it much in a much more interesting way because dialogue is the strong point of this movie. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of right. <laughs> That's how she views the world around her. Lily is literally learning how to fake emotions from Amanda Why are we surprised when she does it, I guess? I think back to that chess scene where they're talking about the horse, right? So Lily, looking back on it the second time, Lily is getting Amanda to tell her about why she killed the horse. And then Lily says, you know, let's do it. I want to kill Mark. I want to kill my stepdad. I wish I was good at killing like you is essentially what happens. And that's all manipulating Amanda into helping her. Looking back on it the second time, I, was, I did not realize that the first time. I knew Lily was not as angelic as she seemed, but I didn't realize how soon the manipulation started. So,
0: Yeah, and how she kind of makes it a point to always remind Amanda you're not really doing much with your life. or, Yeah. She asks her that, right? Yeah. Why?
1: Like, what... <laughs> She says it, it's so cruel. It's something like, what's the point of you? You know, like, what's the point of your life? Do you ever think that your life doesn't have purpose? She's implying that the whole movie, and then at the end, she says it out loud. You know, she asks her point blank, Amanda, do you think your life has purpose since you can't feel? She's trying to absolve herself of any guilt that she might feel. Which clearly works. She seems fine. Mm -hmm. She seems fine. And it's, again, it's so phenomenally acted, these two girls. Amanda is excellent at this calm delivery of everything. And Lily is so good at just every little movement she makes. It is so well done. That's the thing about the shots in this movie. They don't move. They're long, but they're long because they're sitting on these actresses and letting them hmm Tell us things about their characters we couldn't tell otherwise, like little fidgets, little side glances. Like, I, I compare it to the long shots in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and in that movie, those long shots were used, like, as a caress, as intimacy. Yeah. And here, they're used to reveal more of these dark natures that are underneath these girls.
0: Yeah. And I have to say, I think that this movie is very well-paced- I mean, maybe the first 10 minutes kind of drag a little bit just because it's kind of hard to settle into the story. But after that, I think that it gets in and out within, what was it, like 96 minutes? Less less than an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. So i I think that's a pretty good pace for this kind of movie. Like it doesn't drag on for too long.
1: And the tension is constantly being ratcheted up and then kind of brought down a little bit. And then you go back up and it's more tense yeah. with the sound and the dialogue. its I know some people didn't like this movie, but I really did. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it too. I, I think it's I really did. interesting.
0: I think it is too. And I'm so glad that you brought it up because I think it is kind of one of those movies that goes under the radar. And maybe I would have checked it out at some point, but I think that having a friend tell me about it kind of made me just be more apt to check it out in the first place, so I really appreciate that. You are welcome.
1: And you mentioned in a different recording that we did that you c- it's hard to put this movie into a g- genre box. Like, I saw yeah. someone described mm-hmm. it as comedy horror, and I was like, well, I wouldn't describe it as comedy, and I kind of wouldn't describe it as horror either. It's really just Mm-mm. kind of an indie drama, I guess? <laughs> It's not a coming-of-age story. It's really not very dramatic either. I don't know
0: what to classify this movie as, so. Maybe it's coming of rage.
1: Coming of rage! Thank you so much. That's exactly what it is. Oh, now I'm thinking of other movies that could fit that genre. That's amazing.
0: (laughs) I do have to give Jackbox credit for that. That was on one of the games. I forget which party pack it was, if you're familiar with Jackbox at all, but. Definitely
1: thought you were saying Jack in the Box, like that restaurant on the East Coast. (laughs) I was like, okay, I mean. Angry hamburgers, no. That, Coming of Rage, that's great. You know what's funny? Because all coming of age movies have like a teenager with rage at some point. I'm thinking of like Lady Bird and how angry she gets. (laughs) So, yeah, Coming to fridge totally works here.
0: It's good stuff. Is there anything else you want to discuss? I mean, I feel like I could talk about this movie for hours, but I feel like we covered mostly everything. Yeah, it's interesting. And
1: I'm really glad I watched it a second time. I don't watch a lot of movies more than once. I either only watch a movie once or I watch it several, several times. But this one is just interesting. It has a good payoff, I think. It keeps you on the edge of your seat, and you're just curious, even when you know what happens in the end. Something about this camera work and this sound and this dialogue ties together for an excellent movie, so watch it. (laughs) Find it and watch it somewhere and tell us what you think.
0: I'm curious. Much agreed, and I'm interested to see what Corey Finley does next, because this was his first movie, so, uh, Quite an impressive directorial debut. Definitely want to see more from him.
1: And from the girls,
0: who are slowly but surely getting into acting more. So yes, give us more. Give us more indeed. With that, I must ask you, have you watched any good movies or TV shows lately? So, I haven't watched this lately, but
1: I had to bring it up. This is the reason I knew I wanted to see this movie, because of Olivia Cook, Because she was in life itself. Which came out in 2018. And she plays Dylan, the daughter. And it's such a good movie. So many people... Okay, I f- it's one of those movies that you either really like or really don't like, I think. It does really interesting things with narrative and time and how stories connect over generations. It's got Oscar Isaac in it, who I love. And also Olivia Wilde. Is that her name? There's two Olivias. Yes. And it has Mandy... How, do you know how to say his last name? Pa- Mandy Patinkin? Yes, Mandy Patinkin. He's a, it's just a good movie, so I recommend it. I think I might want to rewatch it, actually. <laughs> because, yeah, she's great in it. It's a, It's a really fun movie. What have you been watching?
0: I'm glad that you brought up Life Itself, because that was a movie that I was very intrigued by before it was released, and I heard such divisiveness that I didn't know if i should watch it or not. And i did read part of the script online because it was like one of those blacklisted hollywood scripts for a while. And um i was able to find it on like a google doc or something. I don't know. Hopefully it was legal. Um <laughs> but uh <laughs> i remember reading through the first act maybe and being like, oh, okay." I'm interested to see how this plays out in a movie, so uh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I, I really like
1: it. It's essentially the premise is that life itself is an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. So, how does that work among generations? I really liked it, and I do not. I in some movies I can see why people don't like it, but I cannot see why people didn't like
0: Life Itself. I really liked it, so if you watch it, let me know what you think. I'd love to hear. I shall do that. So for me, the movie that I watched recently that I would recommend is Judas and the Black Messiah, which is currently on HBO Max for a month. By the time this is released, it might be gone. I don't know. Hopefully not. But uh, this was a very good, very effective movie. And, uh, I mean, it's based on historical events, so you could just Google what happens, but uh, all I will say is that um, it's very powerful and very infuriating how nothing has changed in the past, like, 50 or 60 years. But very good to watch and uh, very good performances by Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, as always. If you don't have access to HBO Max or you don't want to go to a theater, which I don't blame you for not wanting to go to a movie theater right now, watch the trailer if you like to watch trailers. I didn't watch it before watching the movie, but I did watch it last night, actually. I was just kind of watching a couple of movie trailers, and uh, it's very well executed. I think it's a very effective trailer for what it's doing, so
1: check it out. It's good to know. I've, I've seen talk about this movie. So if you like it, I'll take your recommendation and watch it. And actually, I, I will watch it. I was I was debating because that's the Fred Hampton movie, right? Yes. Mhm. And I don't know if I trust Hollywood to tell that story like it deserves. I don't know. But if
0: you say it's a good movie, I will watch it. I think that the fact that it was directed by a person of color, there's I don't know. I will say the third act is a very tough watch, but I think that in order to effectively tell the story, it needs to be a tough watch. I think it would be disappointing if it wasn't hard to watch. So uh, just be forewarned. But uh, definitely it's something that has stuck with me throughout the week.
1: All right. So the only other recommendation I have right now is a movie that I rewatched this last week, and it's
0: Bad Times at the El Royale. mm. Did you see that movie? I've attempted to watch it. I got kind of bored and so I didn't finish it, but I've seen enough bits of it to kind of piece together the narrative. I
1: can see why. It was
0: outrageously long. It was
1: about an hour too long. And so I totally understand where you're coming from. This is coming from someone who has never seen Titanic because it's too long. I watched the first hour and 20 minutes of that movie and I was like, hey Matt, how much more do we have? And he was like, you're not even halfway through. And I was like, well, I know what happens in the end. I'm not interested in finishing this movie and I left. So I totally get why you wouldn't want to watch Bad Times. The reason I liked it is because it almost gave me like a a Wes Anderson vibe. Not because it made me think of Grand Budapest Hotel, but because some of the shots were just lined up In a way that made me think of a Wes Anderson movie. Or, or this is weird, or Midsommar. They're all connected somehow in my head. There's an essay in here in my brain, but I just can't get it all out. Something connects all of those. Yeah. yeah, I I, I had fun with it. If you're in the mood for a longer movie, I do recommend it.
0: That's good. I can tell it's a good movie. It just had kind of a slow start, so I didn't stick with it. But I, I saw Cynthia Erivo sing... You can't hurry, love. So I think that's all that I really needed to see out of it. That was a very good scene. really was. (laughs) Lydia, do you have anything to plug at this time?
1: I am always around Twitter if you want to talk about movies. I would love to talk to someone else who likes Bad Times at the El Royale. Someone come validate my feelings
0: on Twitter. You heard her. By the time that this airs, I should have a guest. Spot on the Saturday Morning Obscurities podcast. A couple of friends of mine run that podcast, and I was a guest back in late October, early November to talk about Oogie Loves. <laughs> and it's it should finally be released now, and I didn't even plug the podcast at the time because I didn't have a podcast at the time, and it was still kind of in its early development stages, so uh, a lot's happened since then. What a journey. <laughs> yeah, the podcast. You can find us on Twitter at yourfnfilmcast, and the email is friendlyneighborhoodfilmcast at gmail.com. Until the next one.